So tonight, if you're not aware, the topic is right here, Sacred Scripture, reading the Bible for all it's worth. So we're very excited um, to have David here. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He grew up in England, as you will soon find out. He has a great accent. He is ra was raised in the Catholic faith, and while at university, through the witness of a Catholic missionary, he experienced a profound deepening of his relationship with Jesus Christ. Renewed in his faith, he graduated from university and began his career as a software engineer. After getting a little bored of his homeland's incessant rain, mm -hmm, David left England, choosing instead the sunshine of Southern California. Aren't we blessed? He is a member of Holy Angels Byzantine Catholic Church and is an active member of our young adult community here in San Diego. He led the JP2 Young Adult Group for several years, and he has helped organize many diocesan events. Yes, and he's a great swing dance instructor, salsa instructor, and most of the ideas, the mega theme, you know, like the mega mass, the mega rosary, the mega adoration, that's all David. Very, very creative man. Uh, great ideas. Okay, so David runs a blog called RestlessPilgrim.net, so if you're interested, you can definitely follow him. Very interesting as a means of sharing and explaining the Catholic faith. Its content is syndicated on a number of other respected Catholic websites, and he has also been a guest writer for several other Catholic blogs. Tonight, he is here to talk about, as we said, sacred scripture, reading the Bible for all it's worth. So please help me welcome David Bates. Thank you, Carrie, for those kind words. Um, yeah, I'm kind of running out of things to attach the word mega to. Good evening. My name is David Bates, and as Carrie said, and as you can hear from my accent, I'm not from around here. I'm from across the Atlantic Ocean, from the great country of England. So I was planning on us joining in a rousing chorus of God Save the Queen, um, but I think I'll, I'll leave it as is for the time being. Also, I wanted to use this forum of Theology on Tap. Quite a lot of you know me, and recently there have been quite a few rumors kicking around, and I finally wanted to put some of them to rest. Um, so I'm now finally allowed to say that it's true. The Harry Potter series is loosely based on my life. One of, the, uh, one of the nice things about having an accent is uh, people think I'm intelligent. You know, it doesn't really matter what ridiculous thing I'm saying. People you know, automatically think that I'm intelligent. But there's a downside as well. You know, because sometimes I see that look in people's eyes when it just goes slightly glassy and they've stopped listening to what I'm saying and just, just enjoying the pretty sounds coming out of my mouth. Those of you who are laughing know that you've done this. But also, I'm not always easy to understand. I pronounce some things differently from you. For example, I'm sure all of you here say herbal. I say herbal. And I will leave it to you to work out which way is correct. But tonight, I'd like to speak about my passion. I'd like to speak about sacred scripture. I've led Bible study groups both here and back in England. And I've written about it a lot on my blog, restlesspilgrim.net which, by the way, I intend to shamelessly promote tonight. 
You know, if I don't have at least another 200 subscribers by the end of tonight, I'm going to be really disappointed. <laughs> but it's my hope that by the end of this talk, I will have inspired you to open your Bibles and to read. Uh, and also to read the Bible more deeply. And if I've managed to do that, I will have achieved what I'm setting out to do here tonight, to help you read the Bible for all it's worth. I'd like to just say how I'm going to be structuring tonight. First of all, I'm going to share a little bit about my journey. My journey and the role that Sacred Scripture played in that journey. After that, I'm going to speak a little bit about the relationship between the Bible and the Catholic Church. And I want this talk to be really practical. So after that, I'm going to talk a little bit about how we can gain more from the Sunday Mass and the Scripture that we hear there. And finally, I'm going to dive in, and we're going to dive in deep. And we're going to look at what we, what we can do to read Scripture for all it's worth. Out of interest, how many people bought their Bibles tonight? If you can just hold them up in the air. A few people cheating with phones. Yeah. Oh, oh, we have one over there. One Protestant. Welcome. You are very welcome in this place. Don't worry, she's Catholic, I know her. Seriously, Catholics, keep your Bibles with you. You know, particularly when you come to church events, especially when that church event is entitled Reading the Bible for All It's Worth. But seriously, you never know when you might have a few minutes to spare and you could just pull open your Bible and read for a little while. And if that doesn't sound like something you would do, Hopefully, by the end of this talk, it will be. But before we begin, let's pray. As Carrie said in her introduction, I belong to an Eastern Rite Catholic parish. In case you're unaware, within the Catholic Church, there are a number of different rites. The largest rite is the Roman Rite, to which I'm sure most of you here belong. But there are these other rites. They're still in full communion with the Pope. They share the same Eucharist, but they look a little different. If you've never been to an Eastern Rite Catholic parish, you really should go. It demonstrates the, the breadth and the beauty and the diversity of the church. And there's always a standing invitation to come and visit my church on a Sunday. And I'd like to begin with a prayer from the Eastern Liturgy. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, Everywhere present and filling all things, treasury of blessings and giver of life. Come and dwell within our hearts, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O gracious one. And we ask all the saints in heaven to pray for us. Saint Jerome, pray for us. Saint John Chrysostom, pray for us. Saint Augustine, pray for us. Saint Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I'd like to begin by turning the clock back a few years. So we grew up going to Mass every Sunday, and my sister was a catechist for children's liturgy, and I was an altar server. Some of my most vivid memories of my childhood are of the three of us praying together, as well as singing along in the car to cassettes of Salty the Singing Songbook. Did anybody else have this? What? Oh, this is wonderful. This was my introduction to American culture, right here. As I grew up, 
I had no real rebellion against the church. I know a lot of people do, but I didn't. I still kept going to Mass because it was expected of me. But I also quite enjoyed the liturgy. Um, I enjoyed the stillness that I found after communion. I enjoyed the chant and the beauty of the architecture. It certainly didn't hurt, however, that there were a number of attractive females who also went to Mass. Don't judge me. God's beauty is made present in the world in many, many different ways. But I grew up, I went to university, and in the second year of university, I moved out of the campus accommodation, and I moved into a house that was owned by and situated next to a Catholic church in the city. Shortly after my arrival, they started doing student masses, and there was also a, uh, a prayer group that was begun by a group of missionaries belonging to a group called Verbum Dei. The format was fairly simple. We would begin with prayer, and then one of the missionaries would offer a talk for about 10, 15 minutes on a topic such as the Holy Spirit, the life of faith. And then we would spend another 10 minutes or so in silent prayer, and we would be given a, a sheet of paper with a number of different scripture readings that were related to the topic for that evening. And it was in one of these prayer groups that my faith was ignited. And it was when I came across the following text. This is from the prophet Jeremiah. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as prophet to the nations. Now, I knew this text. I had done religious studies at school, and I had memorized lots of scripture for my exams. But that night, those words had special power in them. It was like the Holy Spirit had gone over them with a highlighter to get my attention. As a result of reading these words, I knew that I was known by God, that my life had meaning and it had purpose. It was like someone had turned on a homing beacon inside of me. St. Augustine, in his Confessions, which is his autobiography, he said, You made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until we rest in you. That night, I began to recognize the deep restlessness of my heart and the space inside which only, only God could fill. And this is what began my adult journey of faith, sacred scripture. Again and again, I've returned to God's written word, and I've been challenged and comforted. I've been admonished and restored. And my goal tonight is that you would also open your Bibles, and if you don't already do so, encounter the living word in this way. The purpose of this talk is to inspire you to read Scripture, to love Scripture, to be the kind of person who has a favorite book of the Bible, the kind of person who has a life verse. In case you're unfamiliar with the term, it's used a lot in evangelical circles. A life verse is basically your favorite Bible verse by which you try and live your life. This is mine. It's from Paul's letter to the Corinthians. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Over the coming days and weeks and months, as you study scripture either by yourself or in a group, or as you hear the readings at Mass, keep your ears open for your life verse. Because if you don't, 
you might end up at a party and get cornered by some enthusiastic Christians who really want to know what your life verse is. What will you say? You don't have one. You might panic. You might just pick a Bible verse at random. And that's risky. You might try and play it safe. Ah, I'll just pick a random psalm. But you might end up picking Psalm 38.7. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I'm going to read that again. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. If your new friends know their Bible, or they look up your life verse there on the spot, things are going to get awkward. As you leave the party, don't expect them to shake your hand or touch you in any way whatsoever. So, no, when in doubt, just say John 3.16. Tim Tebow has taught us well. Whenever I've written about sacred scripture or spoken about sacred scripture, I'm often met with the assertion that the Catholic Church doesn't really care about God's word. That the Catholic Church doesn't think much of the Bible. That our clergy does everything they can within their power to keep it out of our hands. I provide a more detailed response to this on my blog, restlesspilgrim.net. I told you I was going to shamelessly promote it. But I provide a more detailed response there. But I want to spend just a few minutes just to try and dissuade you of this notion if this is what you have. Because I think this has been even believed by some Catholics, thinking that the Bible is only for clergy. So to answer this, we're going to go to the source. Catechism of the Catholic Church, which is the official compendium of all we believe as Catholics. And the section begins in paragraph 103. It says, the church has always venerated the scriptures as she venerates the Lord's body. Now, that's a big statement. It's saying that the Catholic church loves the scriptures in the same way that it loves the Eucharist. And we all know how nuts Catholics are about the Eucharist. And it goes on. The church never ceases to present to the faithful the bread of life taken from the one table of God's word and Christ's body. There is a unity between the two parts of the Mass, between the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. If you go to a typical Roman Rite Mass, you will hear so much Scripture read aloud. You'll hear something from the Old Testament. You'll hear a psalm, an extract from one of the New Testament epistles, and a section from the Gospel. Now, that's a lot of Scripture. Over the course of a year, and especially the three-year cycle, every Catholic will have heard all the important events and themes of salvation history. The Catechism then goes on to speak about the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it says, The fourfold Gospel holds a unique place in the Church, as is evident from the veneration which the liturgy accords it. Think back to Mass. The gospel book is usually eye-catchingly ornate. It's carried aloft in the opening liturgical procession. When it comes time to be read, it's accompanied with prayers, candles, incense, cries of hallelujah, and at the end it's even kissed. 
Why are these things done? They're done for love of Scripture, to demonstrate the importance of the gospel and to prepare the people of God to hear the Word of God. This section then concludes, the church forcefully and specifically exhorts all the Christian faithful to learn the surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ by frequent reading of the Holy Scriptures. Look at those words. All the Christian faithful. Frequent reading. The Catholic Church wants all Catholics to read the Bible. I know, shocking. (laughs) The Bible is not just for religious professionals. It's for everyone, from the child to the theologian. This is what Pope St. Gregory said in the 6th century. I love this. He says, The Holy Scripture is a stream in which an elephant may swim and a lamb may wade. There's something there for everyone. And then the Catechism concludes with a quotation from St. Jerome, possibly the greatest biblical scholar in the Church's history. He's shortened to the point. Ignorance of the Scriptures is ignorance of Christ. So, what should we conclude from this? Put simply, the Catholic Church loves Scripture, and the Catholic Church wants every Catholic to be a Bible Christian. So, if you want to follow the Church's exhortation to read Scripture regularly, what do you do? I'm sure you all know a Bible geek, somebody who knows Scripture really well. And we're often very much impressed by our Protestant brethren, someone that you work with or a friend, in their ability to quote Scripture. They can do it simply because they make it a priority. If you want to grow in your understanding of Scripture, it takes the grace of God, to be sure. But it also takes two very important things, time and effort. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to learn Greek and Hebrew and spend every night poring over ancient documents. Not yet, at least. And when I was originally preparing this talk, in this section I was going to talk a lot about how we can integrate Scripture into our existing devotions and into our lives. But I have a lot of material that I want to get through tonight, so I'm just going to focus on one particular area. How can we get more out of the Scripture that we hear at Mass? As I mentioned earlier, At a Roman Rite Catholic Mass, you hear so much Scripture, four readings. But not only that, virtually everything that is said, either by the priest or the people, is either a direct quotation from Scripture or a paraphrase. For example, the Lord be with you. Catholics, you've been to Mass recently. The Lord be with you. That's Galatians 6.18. Lift up your hearts. That's Lamentations 3.41. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And that's Colossians 1.3. So you see, the Mass is soaked in Scripture. We hear it in the liturgy of the Word and in everything that we say. So why are we not all amazing biblical scholars yet? Where's the problem? Now, I'm sure this would never happen here. But it has been known for Catholics to drift off during Mass. Maybe zone out a little. Again, I'm sure this doesn't happen here. Maybe a little further north, you know, near LA. You know, that that, that end of the dances. But, you know, I think you all know what I'm talking about. You know, you, you cruise into Mass just in time. 
and you, you, you go through the opening prayers and the act of contrition, and then you sit down. And it's at this point, you have a little look around, because you want to see who's at Mass today. I'm sure you're laughing because you know this has happened to somebody else. And then what happens during the psalm? You get distracted by the very attractive brooch that the cantor is wearing. You know, you, you have a friend who's having a birthday coming up, and you're wondering, oh, I wonder where she got it. Oh, I'm sure they would really like it. And then during the second reading, you tackle the very important question. Where are we going to go for brunch afterwards? <laughs> but then you stand for the gospel, and you promise yourself you're really going to focus this time. You are going to summon all your mental powers and concentration and acuity. And you get distracted by your shoelace. And the two kids trying to kill themselves in the pew in front of you. And before you know it, you're hearing the gospel of the Lord. And then you sit down for the homily. Now, I don't know what it is about the homily. It's like we are zapped with the neuralizer from Men in Black. You know the thing that wipes people's memories? Just think for a moment. What was the homily you heard on Sunday about? There are quite a few blank looks and a, quite a bit of nervous laughter happening. So what can be done about this? What can we do to make sure that we can focus on the readings and on the homily? What can we do to make sure that we get m the most out of the exposure to Scripture we get in the Sunday Mass? Well, I have five suggestions. Number one, read the readings beforehand. Now, I'm going to be speaking for about 45 minutes, 50 minutes. This is the most important thing that I'm going to say tonight. If you want to get more out of the Mass, if you want to get more out of the Scripture you hear at Mass, read the readings ahead of time. We're in a wonderful diocese. We have lots of young adult uh, Bible study groups. You can join one of them and actually study the Bible with your peers. If you can't make it to a Bible study for whatever reason, there are loads of online resources. Life Teen has a podcast called Sunday, 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 which will help you prepare your readings. And there are loads of priests with online ministries. Monsignor Pope in D.C., Father Robert Barron in Chicago, and our very own Father Jacob. All of these guys, they post their homilies online. So, read the readings beforehand. Number two, prepare with prayer. Get to Mass in good time and prepare yourself. Pray for the priests and the lectors, the people that are going to be bringing God's Word to you. Pray for them and pray for yourself that your heart will be open to hear what it is they have to teach you. So, read the readings beforehand, prepare with prayer, read along. I find it really helpful to follow along the, with the readings as they're being proclaimed. And you can do this using the missalette that'll be in the pew. Now, if you go to a church that doesn't have missalettes, leave. It's a lame parish. No, 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 sorry. No, you're allowed to stay there, but buy your own missalette or get a subscription to something like Magnificat. It'll, it's just a little book. You get it each month. It'll have all the readings in there. So read the readings beforehand, prepare with prayer, read along, and take a notepad. If any of you have attended non-Catholic Christian services, particularly of the evangelical variety, 
you will have noticed that during the sermon, everybody is making notes. Now, I think there's something that we can learn here. Now, I'm sure a lot of you have heard of the Catholic speaker, Matthew Kelly. He suggests that at each homily, each set of readings, at each mass, you look for one thing. One thing that you can take away and use to nourish your spiritual life for the coming week. I'm absolutely certain, if you are attentive, you will hear something every single week. And when you have your one thing, write it down in a notepad. You can either do it in church during the homily, or you can do it when you get back to your car. But write it down and review it. If you get one thing a week, you're going to have a really good resource by the end of the year. So, read the readings beforehand, prepare with prayer, read along, take a notepad, and finally, make Sunday lunch a tradition. Invite your friends over for Sunday lunch, particularly if I'm your friend. But invite your friends over, or those new to the parish, and then after you've finished eating, as you're all sitting around drinking tea, which I'm sure you all do, lots of nodding faces, that's good, Discuss the readings, reread them, maybe, or maybe just the gospel, but discuss the different parts of the readings and the homily that touched you. And if your friends go to a different parish, the, your discussion will be even richer because you'll get the benefit of what their pastor spoke about. So those are my suggestions. Read the readings beforehand, prepare with prayer, read along, take a notepad, and make Sunday lunch a tradition. These are my suggestions if you want to get more out of your Sunday Mass in terms of Scripture. So, now we get to the final part. I have convinced you, hopefully, to read your Bible, to study your Bible, and to get to know God's Word better. But what do you do? Well, before we actually get down to studying Scripture, we have to do a couple of things. Number one, you've got to get your hands on a Bible. Now, I could say so many things here, but I'm just going to say, make sure it's a Catholic Bible. If you've got any more questions about translations, we can deal with that in Q&A. And speaking of Q&A, I have some little prizes here for those of you who are brave enough to ask questions. Once you have a Bible, decide what you're going to read. Now, I've suggested reading the Sunday Mass readings ahead of time. But you might get brave and actually want to read a book of the Bible in its entirety. Now, how do you do it? Some people want to do Bible bingo. They just want to take their Bible, flip it open, and just start reading. That's not a very good idea. It's like joining a conversation sort of mid-sentence. Or maybe this is just me, but have you ever walked along the street and caught a snippet of somebody's conversation and then spent the rest of the day trying to work out what context could possibly make sense of those words. If Audrey hadn't been vegan, I'd have never have trained to become an accountant. That kept me awake for three days. But no, so don't do, don't do Bible bingo. Another thing people want to do is they want to read the Bible like a novel from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. And that's okay, but I would really suggest not doing that. Likewise, some people, when they get all excited, you know, they heard a great talk by a guy, can't remember what he said, but he had a great accent, and he said something about reading the Bible. 
and they want to go home and start reading Romans or the book of Revelation, find out what that 666 is all about. Again, I wouldn't suggest that. So where might be a good place to start? I would suggest the Gospels. Read them. Get to know Jesus. Mark's Gospel is by far the simplest and shortest. And you can even get an online dramatized audio version at truthandlifebible.com. I actually have the complete set here if you want to have a look afterwards. But read the Gospels. If you want something a little shorter, you could begin with the Epistle of James. This was actually the first book of the Bible I ever read through in its entirety. And it's probably one of my favorite books. It's very down to earth. It's about the life of faith, about practical Christian living. Another good book at this point is Paul's letter to the Philippians. This is Paul at his most encouraging. It is an epistle of joy and hope. And Paul wrote this at a point in his life when things did not look good. I think there's a lot we can learn from reading an epistle like that. If you really want to begin with the Old Testament, I would suggest starting with the wisdom literature. The books of Proverbs and Sirach are very readable. I've heard people refer to them as Catholic fortune cookies because they're these short little pithy pieces of divine wisdom. And the Psalms as well, a wonderful place to begin praying with Scripture. If you, any of you do the Liturgy of the Hours, you'll be doing this already. And what makes the Psalms really good is that they fall into one of two categories. Either the psalmist is praising God for his great glory, or he is giving him an earful because life sucks. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. You know, when I get up and pray the Psalms in the morning, particularly if it's before I've had my cup of tea, it's definitely going to be the latter. So, you have a Bible, you've decided what you're going to read, now decide how much you're going to read at a time. Again, it's very tempting to just sit down and read and read and read and read. But think about a time when you decided you were going to get into shape. You put on your running shoes, you went out the door, and you ran and ran and ran and ran until you felt you were about to throw up. And then you sort of limped back home. And what happened the next day? You were so sore. You didn't put on those running shoes again for a good six months. Now, we don't want to do the same with Scripture here. You know, we read a little and often is far better than two marathon sessions a year. If you look in most Bibles, you'll see that the chapters are usually broken down into these little sections. Maybe just read one or two for five or ten minutes. If you do that every day, that is so much better than just sitting down and having a four-hour session after which you never want to open the book ever again. So, you have a Bible, you've decided what you're going to read, and you've decided how much you're going to read at a time. Now we get down to the nitty-gritty of how you actually study the Bible. And a lot could be said here. You know, we could talk about exegesis, hermeneutics, methodology, the anagogical sense, the tropological sense. And we could talk for hours and hours and barely scratch the surface. So, you know, settle in, order a few more drinks. We're going to be here for three, four hours tops, and then we will be done. No. We don't have that time. Tonight, I just want to give you a few tools that you can begin applying the next time you read the Bible. 
When you break it down, this is what it does when you read scripture. You pray, you read, you ask questions, you look for answers, and you apply it to your life. So, step one. Everybody please say, pray. Let's try that again. Everybody please say, pray. Wonderful. So before you even crack open your Bible, you should pray. It doesn't have to be anything tremendously impressive. You don't have to use mellifluous words to impress the Almighty, the creator of the universe. It can be nice and simple. It doesn't have to be like the prayer in the movie Sister Act. For those of you who haven't seen it, Whoopi Goldberg plays a lounge singer who's put into a convent as part of the witness protection program. The sisters ask her to say grace, and this is what she says. Bless us, O Lord, and these thy gifts, which we are about to receive. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of no food, I will fear no hunger. We want you to give us today our daily bread, and to the republic for which it stands. And now, by the power invested in me, I pronounce us ready to eat. No. Come Holy Spirit. That will do. Personally, I usually pray an off-the-cuff prayer. But the wonderful thing about being Catholic is we have 2,000 years of beautiful prayers that we can draw from, if that's what you would prefer to do. So, step one was pray. Step two is read. Now, duh, you know, this is a really obvious step. But I put it down because we always want to rush through this. We always want to get past the reading and start explaining the passage. Don't rush. This isn't a magazine. It's not the latest biography of Justin Bieber. Read slowly and carefully and prayerfully. Grapple with the text. And if, as you're reading, something jumps out at you, stop. Take a little bit of time on that word, that phrase, that sentence, the thing that touched you. Give yourself time to process what you're reading. God gave you each an imagination. And reading scripture is a great time to use that imagination. Place yourself within the passage that you're reading. Insert yourself into the story. This was a manner of meditation that was popularized by Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits. And what I'd like to do, I'm going to read a short passage from the gospel, and I'd just like you all to close your eyes and place yourself in the text as I read. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. Can you feel the heat of the noonday sun? Can you smell the different aromas of the marketplace? Can you hear the bustle of the crowd surrounding Jesus? Can you see their faces? And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Can you see him? Can you hear Bartimaeus' voice as he cries out? How does that make you feel? And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, rise, he is calling you. 
where are you in this scene? Are you the blind man? Are you a bystander? Are you one of the people telling him to be quiet? And throwing off his mantle, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Master, let me receive my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him along the way. I think you can see how powerful this style of reading scripture can be. It can really help us engage with the text, particularly emotionally. It can help us stop Scripture just becoming an exercise in reading comprehension. What was step one? And step two? So step three, everybody please say, ask questions. No, I said ask questions. Now doesn't that sound nicer? This is probably the most important point. As I said at the beginning, I have led Bible study groups both here and back in England. And I'm always amazed at how reticent people are at asking questions. And I think we often don't want to ask questions for two reasons. The first one is we're afraid of looking silly. We are afraid of asking that really silly, obvious question. But I can absolutely guarantee you, absolutely guarantee you, If you are ever in a group and you're studying scripture and you have a question, there will be somebody else in that group who also has the same question. They're just too timid to ask it. So be bold. Frank Sheed said, every new thing known about God is a new reason to loving him. So, ask questions. Find out new things about God. Find new reasons to love him. The other reason why I think we often don't ask questions is we approach Scripture with this sort of twisted notion of piety. We think that if we ask questions, we'll somehow be bad Christians. I'm sorry, but Jesus said some very shocking things in the Gospels. He says if we are to become his disciples, we must hate mother and father. What did he mean? You know, we have to ask these questions if we're to understand the text and understand the fullness of the text. And it doesn't matter if you don't know the answer straight away. We're going to get to that step later. But ask questions first of all. And if asking questions is a good thing, what are some good questions to ask? The first kind of question relates to context. The Bible isn't just a book. It is a book, but it's also a library. You have many, many different books in there. So if you're reading, say, Mark's Gospel, it helps to have some background. Who is this Mark guy? To whom is he writing? Why is he writing? Where is he getting his information from? The more context you have, the richer your reading will be. And it's really important that you understand the literary genre of the book you're reading. Remember I said it's like a library? You are going to understand a book of poetry you know, a book that comes out of the poetry section, very differently from the way that you're going to read a book that comes out of the history section. If I was describing a lady's beauty, I might say she is like a rose. I'm using a simile. I'm not saying she's literally covered in thorns. Literary genre is really important. 
So that's the context of the book. But what about the actual passage itself? Particularly if you're, say, reading the Sunday Mass readings. If you're, say, reading the Old Testament passage in preparation for next Sunday. Chances are that section you're getting is part of a larger section. So as you're studying, get your Bible out and read the verses that precede and follow. Get a better idea of the context. It's likely to be important. So now you've got context, you can now ask questions about the text itself. First things first, make sure you understand all the words. Sometimes there will be words that relate to Jewish culture, but sometimes they'll just use words that you don't use very often. Make sure you understand them. And then you can ask all the important questions. Who, what, where, when, why, and how. Really understand the nuts and bolts of the passage. Be certain that you know what is actually going on here. Ask questions about geography. For example, in the infancy narratives, we're told that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. If you were a first century Jew, you would know that Bethlehem means house of bread. Now that's going to be important when Jesus says that he's the bread of life. But you would also know that Bethlehem is the town of David, that there were messianic promises associated with that town. Likewise, ask who. You're going to be dealing with characters that you might not have met. Who are they? Every year we get the genealogy from Matthew's gospel. You know the one? Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, begat, begat. Silly name, silly name. Any of you that are lectors, when you get assigned that reading, your heart just sinks. But who are these people? If you don't know, this genealogy is going to make no sense to you. And that's why a lot of people find genealogies boring when they're actually full of drama. And not only that, there's some of the raciest material in the Bible. They're all about begetting. So we've asked questions about the context and the text. But we can ask questions that will help us understand the deeper meaning of the passage. We can ask questions about other testaments. So, for example, you are reading um, the sacrifice of Isaac. So God tells Abraham, take your son, your only son, your beloved son, take him up this mountain and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Abraham is obedient. He takes the wood for the altar, places it on Isaac's back, and they go up the mountain. And as they're climbing, Isaac asks the obvious question. Hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? I see a knife. I see the wood. Where's the, you know, this wasn't a dumb kid. But Abraham says to him, the Lord will provide. And as Abraham is about to kill him, an angel stops him, and a ram is offered in place. Now, as we read a passage like that, we should be thinking about another event that happens in the New Testament that also relates to a father and a son, an only son, a beloved son. This son also ascends that mountain. He also carries wood on his back, although this time it's in the form of a cross. And on that mountain, the Lord does provide. He provides the Lamb of God offered in sacrifice to divine love. St. Augustine famously said that the New Testament lies hidden in the Old, and the Old is unveiled in the New. So when we read something in one Testament, we should look to the other one to see either a fulfillment or an echo. So when Jesus says that he is the bread come down from heaven, we should be thinking back to Moses in the desert 
when the manna came, when bread came from heaven. And fortunately for us, this is absolutely handed to us on a platter in the Mass. Because the first reading is almost always related to the Gospel reading. I timed that just so I could have a beer. <laughs> but no, this is handed to us on a plate at Mass. And so when you are studying the Scripture readings, or you're hearing them if for the first time, look for the connections. Look for the similarities and the differences between the Old Testament and the Gospel reading. Another important question to ask is, does anything in this passage point us to the end of time? To heaven, hell, final judgment? For example, when... Jesus is telling his parables, and he speaks about two different kinds of servants. There are those servants who use their talents. They work diligently. And there are the cruel servants who get drunk and are surprised when their master turns up. When we read a passage like that, it should remind us that one day we're going to stand before the throne of God and have to answer for our lives. And that feeds into the final question, the moral question. What is the moral of the passage that you're reading? How does it affect my life? How should I live? How should I act? How should I act rightly? Step one was what? Step two was step three. Come on, we went through this. Ask questions. There you go. <laughs> and number four. Everybody, please say, look for answers. <laughs> this makes me so happy. <laughs> look for answers. Look for answers in the text. Because you've asked a whole lot of questions, so go looking for those answers. And sometimes you will find them in the text itself, particularly after careful reading. But sometimes you might have to do some detective work. You might have to look up the names and places in something like this, a Bible dictionary, to get a little bit more background. You might have to consult some maps to find out where these events are taking place. You might want to use a concordance, if they say a particularly tricky word, like righteousness, and you want to find out where else in the Bible is that word used. And there are so many tools that we can buy to help us in our study. But I would just say, don't go crazy. Back to the workout analogy. I'm sure you all know someone else who, when they decided to get fit, they went out and spent a lot of money on gym clothes, on a new training bag, on equipment, on training supplements, but somehow never actually got to go to the gym very often. Or when they did, they just sort of walked around and showed off their new clothes. It can be the same with Bible study. I recommend just beginning with a good study Bible. This is the Ignatius New Testament it's a study Bible, and it is amazing. It's got all of those things that I said. You know, it's got maps, concordance, and also wonderful commentary. So if you're not sure what a passage means, there'll usually be notes. And this is really useful because very often when a Bible author is writing, they're writing from within their own culture, and that's not our culture. And speaking for myself, I now currently live in a place that is not my native culture. 
For example, the very, very first time I came to the States, it was about summertime. See if you can work out what, what I'm describing here. It was summertime, and then on one day, everybody stayed at home, they, all, they went to the beach, had a barbecue, drank a lot of beer, and the evening ended with fireworks. What am I describing? Independence Day, yeah. Or as I like to call it, High Treason Day. But you as Americans, you all recognize that from that very vague description. And I, I sent some of my notes to some of my friends back in England, and they said, are they going to get that? And of course you are, because this is your culture. When I mentioned, particularly when I mentioned beer. Um, but you know, as soon as I say Independence Day, you have lots of connections. You know of the, of, of, of the traditions that you grew up with. You know of the history and the people involved and the, the countries involved. And it's very often the same with the Bible. An author will mention something and assume that you know everything else that's around it, everything else that's associated with it. And that's where a study Bible can come in real handy. For example, let's say you're reading the book of Exodus. You are reading about Moses striking the Nile with his staff, and it turns blood. You might think, that's pretty cool. But a study Bible will point out to you that the Egyptians regarded the Nile as divine, closely associating it with the god Happy. That's H-A-P-I. And just with that little note, you see the drama now in the text because you have Moses standing in the place of the God of Israel, taking the priestly staff of Aaron and striking the Egyptian God Happy and making him bleed. The God of Israel demonstrating his superiority and supreme power over the, the false gods of Egypt. I can't really leave this section without mentioning something that is distinctly Catholic. When we read the Bible, we don't need to approach it as though the last 2,000 years didn't happen. You are not the first person to read the book of Revelation. We can draw upon the writings of the saints for the last 2,000 years to help us understand the Bible. And when we do that, we read the Bible with the mind of the church, from the heart of the church, and with the living tradition of the church. But what do you do if you're looking for answers and you get stuck? I suggest find a Bible geek. There's usually at least one per parish. Speak to your priest, your spiritual director, or phone into Catholic Answers, or use their online forums. I use them all the time. They've got some really knowledgeable people on there. So, step one. What was it? Pray. Step two? Read. Step three? So good. Step four? Wonderful. And we now come to the final point. Apply to life. Everybody please say, apply to life. We've prayed, we've read, we've asked questions, we've looked for answers. It's now time to take the fruit of our study, to apply what we've learned. If what we've studied just stays up here, if it just stays in your head, your time will have largely been wasted. St. John Chrysostom, one of my all-time favorite early church fathers, he said the Holy Scriptures were not given to us that we should enclose them in books, but that we should engrave them upon our hearts. Let what's in your head find its way into your heart. And it doesn't stop there. Let what's come into your heart find its way into your hands, into your life. Because as, as Jesus said, 
in John's Gospel. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. We live in a time where people are woefully ignorant of the Bible. Many people have never read a single verse from either testament. And this is why we study the Bible, to draw closer to God, but also so that we can be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because the only testament, the only gospel, the only good news someone may encounter is the life that you live. Tonight, I have shared a little bit of my story. I have spoken a little bit about the relationship between the Bible and the Catholic Church. I've given some suggestions as to how you might want to get more out of Scripture at Mass. And I've hopefully given you some tools that will help you read the Bible for all it's worth. However, it's now up to you. When you go home tonight, and over subsequent days and weeks and months, will you open your Bible and read? I began with my own story, and I would like to end with somebody else's. There was a man. He was very much a man of the world, very ambitious, intent on fame and fortune. He had rejected his childhood faith and joined a new age kind of cult. He engaged in the kind of sins that young men typically, unfortunately, engage in. But he soon grew disillusioned with his life and with his, the cult that he had joined. And he began to reassess the claims of the religion of his mother. The tipping point came in a garden. He heard a child nearby singing tole lege, tole lege, which is Latin for take up and read. He had with him an epistle of St. Paul. He took it up, he read, and he received the grace of conversion. Today we call him St. Augustine of Hippo. He was a priest, a bishop, a saint, an early church father, a prolific writer. He's probably, probably the most influential theologian in our church's history. That was the power the sacred scripture had over his life. If nothing else that I've said tonight sticks with you, I hope it's the words that St. Augustine heard. Tole lege. Take up and read. Become fully Catholic by becoming a Bible Christian. Take up the scriptures, read, and be transformed. Thank you. Mm -hmm.